verse 13 through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. This is God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, all Shall, uh, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. For the transgressors. This is the word of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I pray that you will give us supernatural attention and our hearts really listen to what your word has to say to us this morning. Help us to put aside distractions and the cares of this week. Lord, may we just delight in the words that you have given us. May be present among us as we think on your word, as we try to apply it to our lives, as we try to live out of its truth. Give me the ability to speak well. 
and clearly. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I am a big podcaster, which means I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, and I was just reflecting. It's strange to think uh, five years ago, podcasts existed, but they weren't a big deal, and I didn't listen to any yet. And um, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts. It's just strange to think this whole phenomenon is so new. Um, but uh, one of the ones I listen to uh, is called Unbelievable by Justin Briley. And I actually heard of this podcast through a new, different podcast, um, Phil Vischer, who's the uh, one who, he kind of was the mastermind behind VeggieTales. He used to have a podcast. Um, and uh, if you know VeggieTales, the mind that would think of VeggieTales is a very interesting person. So it was a very interesting uh, podcast. And, um, and they were talking about uh, Christian radio and why Christian radio in America is, is, um, is lacking. Let's just leave it at that. It's just lacking. And he's, he's, he's saying, you know, uh, look at English or, or British uh, Christian radio. They had things like Unbelievable. Uh, hosted by Justin Briley, where they engage like real issues and it's subst- substantive and intellectually rigorous. Like, why can't we have things like that? And so I was like, oh, I need to check out this uh, this radio show podcast called Unbelievable. And the idea behind it is is Justin Briley. He gets together um, two people, very opposing views, and then they just have a like hour long debate over whatever it is. And he gets like leading thinkers in the field to debate these issues. It's fascinating. So to give you an idea, and this may not make any difference to you, but some of you may get this. So one time he had Richard Bauckham, who is probably, he may not be alive, but he was the leading or one of the leading early Christian scholars. He's also an evangelical. He had him debate Bart Ehrman, who kind of made his chops by disputing the, the, the reliability of early Christian manuscripts. He had them both debate on the reliability of early Christian manuscripts. So you have like big minds for like an hour. This is not, you know, American-style presidential debate sound bites. Like this is substantive dialogue and debate and discussion. Anyway, so that's a plug, Unbelievable by Justin Briley. Really, really interesting uh, and substantive. And a couple weeks ago, uh, actually it was over Thanksgiving week, he was doing replays because he's on break. And so we had one from a couple years ago where, uh, uh, so again, he's in England and London, and there was a, a, a secular humanist group in London that did what was called the Atheist Bus Campaign. And so basically they bought ads for the side of public city buses that said, there probably isn't a God, so go ahead and live your life. And what was interesting is, is so he interviewed the kind of founder of that marketing campaign, and then he also interviewed a, 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 a Christian who led a, a kind of a apologetics ministry who actually donated money to this campaign because they thought it was a great idea to spark thought. Because um, even though we don't agree with the thought, it's like making people think about, well, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't exist, thoughts that in our kind of secular world we can kind of put aside and not even worry about. So that, anyway, so that was kind of the angle of the debate. But um, he asked the person who kind of made this atheist bus campaign, like, what, what was the thinking behind this campaign? And she was a woman, and she said, well, a lot of times Christians will have billboards up, and they'll say stuff like, you know, Jesus loves you and has forgiven you of your sins, or, or something like that. And you, and you see that, and, and then you feel bad because you, you realize, well, I feel guilty of all the things I've done, and, you know, forgiveness makes me feel bad. And, 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 and so we just wanted to, we wanted to give people some, some optimism. We wanted them to feel good. You know, look, God probably doesn't exist, so don't worry about it. Don't, don't beat yourself up over your sins. Just go and live your life. That was the thinking behind this uh, atheist bus campaign. It was kind of an optimism. Wanted to spread good cheer. And it's interesting, Christmas 
is probably the most optimistic holiday that we have as a culture. And, and we kind of spread kind of this similar kind of vague optimism, you know, you see joy, hope, love, peace everywhere, regardless if it's in a church or not. Like I was at a light show with my parents two nights ago for our kids, and there's this huge, like, you know, let peace in these, like, 10-foot-tall lighted words. And my mom's like, oh, you're speaking on peace. You should take a picture of that and include it in your sermon. So I'm including it, Mom. You're probably watching this online. So there you go. I included it. But it's just kind of, like, generic. Like, we want to make people feel good. But there's not a whole lot of substance behind it. What we're going to find out this morning is that Christian peace is not just some vague sense of well-being. It's not even just a cessation of conflict. Peace in the Christian sense is a restoration of God's design for human flourishing. And contrary to the, the, the atheist bus campaign and, and, and kind of, you know, the thought of I just want to make people feel better, this peace actually had a great cost to it. It was achieved at a great cost. And so to give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning, I want to first, we're going to spend some time just exploring the biblical concept of peace. Because when we talk about peace, we have a, a certain concept, but, the, but it's a very truncated concept, and the biblical idea of peace is far more expansive. So I want to spend some time just thinking of what does it mean when the Bible talks about peace, and then second, we're going to talk about the cost of that peace, that the restoration of our peace or our shalom gave him at a great cost. It came at the cost of Jesus bearing our griefs and at the cost of Jesus bearing our death. So I'm going to give some, just some quick exegesis. And just so you know, we're going to be focusing on verses 4 to 6. I wanted to read the whole uh, passage just to give context, but we're really only looking at verses 4 to 6. Now, what we're looking at this morning is part of what's called the servant songs. There's four servant songs in Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 42. This is the last one. And these songs describe the calling and ministry of this servant. It's not clear in the text who, or who this is going to be, or even that's a person, but there are these songs that describe this person who's described as a servant of the Lord and who's going to do certain ministries on behalf of the people of Israel. And so some of the ways that this servant is described in these various servant songs throughout Israel, in chapter 42, it says that he will faithfully bring forth justice. Chapter 49, uh, this is God speaking to this servant. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or in chapter 50, this is the servant actually speaking himself. He said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And, and if you've noticed in the, in the passage we read this morning in Isaiah 53, this servant would suffer. And so he's often not just called the, the, the servant of the Lord, but the suffering servant. The, suffering, the songs of the, of, of the suffering servant. Now, when these were written initially, there was a specific context they were being written to. They were being written to Israel while Israel was in exile. So Israel had disobeyed the Lord. After centuries of God showing compassion and mercy, it reached the end of his mercy, and he sent them into exile. They were conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and they spent 70 years, well, 100 to 70 years, depending on when they went, in exile in a foreign land. And these are written as, as, as songs of hope to a people who are in probably the darkest time of the, of the community of Israel's history. I mean, this was the low point for them. They, weren't, they were not functionally a country or a community anymore. They were split up into various groups, spread out throughout the Babylonian Empire without any sovereignty um, and with, frankly, no hope of ever being a nation again. And it was at that dark, dark time 
that God gave Isaiah 40 through the end of uh, Isaiah, which includes these servant songs. And what we know now, obviously, as New Testament Christians, is that this servant, this servant of the Lord, would be Jesus. And he would fulfill all the various prophecies that were given in these servant songs. And the one that we're going to focus on this morning is what he says in verse 5, that upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. The fact that Jesus Christ in his life and ministry has brought us peace. But again, as I mentioned, we use peace in a different way, and so I want to ask some questions about peace before we actually get into how Jesus brought us that peace. First question is, why do we need peace? As far as I'm concerned, I'm not at war with anyone. I mean, the way we use peace, so in 1945, when Nazi Germany finally surrendered to the Allied forces, the Associated Press announced that there is peace in Europe. And we know exactly what that means. That's how we typically think of peace. Or a, a, you know, a parent who has a lot of kids you know, thinks, if I could just have some peace and quiet. This idea of peace is just a, a stopping of conflict, um, a moment of pausing in the hostilities between your kids or the craziness of life or, or you know, open warfare between nations. Once that ends, it's peace. Well, again, as I mentioned, it's a very truncated view of peace. And if that's what peace means, then why do I need peace? I'm not at war with anyone. I don't have any enemies that I can think of. Hope not. Let me know if you're my enemy. I'll, I'd like to get coffee with you. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the Old Testament means by peace. For the Old Testament word for peace is shalom. And I'm actually going to use that word because, not because I want to, anyways, the reason I want to use the word shalom is I want to actually distinguish this from how we think of peace. Because it's different enough that I think it's helpful to use a whole other word. And so the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace is literally shalom. It's going to be referring to this as shalom. And the idea of, of shalom or peace in the Old Testament is much broader and more expansive. Cornelius, Cornelius Plantinga, in, in, in his really, really thought-provoking book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, I really encourage you to read it. He writes this. He says, in the Bible, shalom, again, that's peace, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a lot different than just stopping fighting. And then this really provocative sentence, he writes, shalom, or again, peace, shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. When, when Nazi Germany surrendered, there was not shalom. There was massive devastation throughout Europe that would take decades to recover from. That was not shalom. Shalom is not just stopping fighting. Shalom is how things ought to be. We all have a sense that things ought to be a certain way, which is why when 2020 happened, all of us were like, I didn't see it coming. What did we mean? We meant this is not how life is supposed to be. We're not supposed to be in the midst of a pandemic where our lives are at risk, where we can't spend time with our family members and our friends like we want to. There's an intuitive sense, and we may not articulate that, but we just know this is not how it's supposed to be. And when we feel that, what we're getting at is this tension between our innate sense of how God has designed things to be and the reality of the fact that it's not how it's supposed to be. And there's different ways. This kind of brings us to another question. Okay, so we recognize that things are not how they're supposed to be, certainly in 2020. This is not how, this is not how the year is supposed to go. Why are things not how they're supposed to be or how they ought to be? Well, if you go back in history, back before really the, the spread of Christianity and kind of pagan history, 
things were not how they were supposed to be because there was some deity that you had offended, oftentimes in an arbitrary way. And so the reason things are not as they ought to be is because you need to make a sacrifice to some god for making them angry for some reason. As you move into kind of the Enlightenment and modernity and kind of more modern times, it became, well, things are not how they ought to be because there's not, like, civilization, whatever that means, has not spread. We're not educated enough. We're still, you know, tied to superstitious ideals. And so once science and progress and technology, as that continues forward, things shall be as they ought to be. There was an amazing amount of optimism in the Enlightenment. And of course, World War I and World War II blew that to pieces as the most enlightened countries were the ones that were slaughtering each other. Why are things not as they ought to be? As Christians, we know it's because of the presence of evil and sin. Planting it again, he, he describes evil in this broad category as anything that vandalizes God's shalom. Okay, think about that. So shalom is God's design for how things ought to be. Anything that works against that, anything that, that, that opposes that, or as he says, vandalizes it, that's evil. So evil could be a physical cause. It could be a disease. A disease vandalizes. God did not create our world to have diseases. Disease is evil. God did not create a world to have tsunamis that wipe out thousands of people. Physical, natural disasters are, are, are part of the evil that vandalizes God's shalom. And then when you think of people... Sin is specifically what people do to vandalize God's shalom, to oppose and work against God's design for human flourishing and goodness and delight. So here's the point. Here's, evil is not like a social construct we, we make up to make sense of, of our lives. Sin is not just obeying God's arbitrary commands like God's this dictator is like, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like this is how it should be. Do that. Sin is, is, is working against God's plan for human flourishing, against God's design that he built into his whole cosmos. And this is important in our current day and age when we start dealing with questions of sexual ethics. When, when, when our culture moves further and further and further away from a Christian understanding of sexual ethics, it can be really easy to be tempted to think, boy, this seems really arbitrary, that it has to be a man and a woman and that's it. A man and a man love each other, what's the big deal? Or a woman and a woman, or a man and two women, or whatever. It can begin to seem really arbitrary, and this is where we have to come back to the fact that God is not issuing arbitrary commands, but he is working for shalom. His design for human flourishing, for goodness and delight. And so when we work against it, when we disobey God's commands, we're not arbitrarily breaking some arbitrary rule. We are actually opposing God's design that leads to our own flourishing and our own well-being. So again, we're talking about what does the Bible talk about? Peace, shalom, why is there not shalom? Because of the presence of evil and sin, which vandalizes God's shalom. And of course, what we'll find, what we'll see is that Jesus is our peace. He brought us our peace, first peace with God, but then also peace in our relationships, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our communities. I'm going to get at how that happened but when it says that Jesus is our peace, this is the this whole under, Old Testament understanding of shalom, of human flourishing, of delight, that affects our spiritual, physical, emotional realities. That's the context. It's not just stop fighting. 
It's that picture of a man sitting under his fig tree while his children play in the streets without fear of harm. That's the idea of shalom. That's the idea of peace that Jesus brings us. But it came at a great cost. Jesus restored our shalom at a great cost. The first cost is that he bore our griefs for us. Look at verses 4 to 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now again, let's look at the first initial audience. This is being written to Israel in exile. And so when when God is saying, the servant will bear your griefs, he's referring to a community that has known its fair share of grief and sorrow. You gotta think if, if, you know, the way the exile happened, it happened after 30 years of, of periodic, sporadic war with Babylon. And so every person in the community likely knew someone who had died in that war. That's, I don't think we understand that. Probably have not since World War II. But not only that, not only has everyone probably known someone who died, but everyone has been forced to leave. Literally leave everything you own. You lose your house, you lose your property, nothing that you can't carry on your back. And there's no guarantee you'll ever get anything back. You move to a land where you probably can't own land, where you don't have, you know, civic rights. That's the sorrow and the grief that Israel's experiencing when God says, this servant, he will bear your griefs. He will bear your sorrows. But here's the thing about, about Israel's griefs and sorrows is that that was the result of sin. It was the direct result of Israel's disobedience. God had warned Israel all throughout, look, if you obey me, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you and I will be your God. But if you turn to other gods, if you continue to be unfaithful, There will come a day when my mercy will run out, and I will send you into exile. And so the griefs and the sorrows that Israel was bearing, that is the initial context this this, uh, prophecy was written to, they're experiencing griefs and sorrows as a direct result of their own disobedience. And Jesus says, I'm going to bear those sorrows. I'm going to bear those griefs. The question I want to ask for us this morning is, why would... Why does a servant have to bear sorrows and griefs? I think, okay, I think we understand that idea that Jesus bears our sin. Why does Jesus bear our grief and sorrow? Because yes, this was written to Israel in exile, but more ultimately, this is the word of God. It's written to all of God's people throughout eternity. So he's going to bear our griefs and our sorrows. Is he only referring to the griefs and sorrows that are a direct result of sin like for Israel? Right? So, 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 so the man who's been an alcoholic for 50 years and has cirrhosis of the liver and is dying from that, we would say, well, to some extent, that, that grief is deserved. You, this is a direct result of you abusing your body for 50 years. Is that the, so- the sorrow and grief that Jesus bears? I'm going to argue, no. Jesus bears all of our griefs and all of our sorrows, and this is why. And, and I'm gonna, this is going to get a little bit complicated, and I, and I hope I communicate this right. But because in a very real and ultimate sense, there is no such thing as innocent suffering. Let me explain. Theologians refer to something called the fall as the consequences of sin that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. If 
we look at Genesis 1 and 2, <clears throat> Adam and Eve are tempted, they sin, and then Genesis 3, there are consequences. And these are tragic and widespread. They refer to marital dysfunction, relationship dysfunction, they refer to pain in childbirth, they refer to work becoming futile and meaningless and pointless. And these aren't meant to be exhaustive, they're just the tip of the iceberg. But diseases, natural disasters, dysfunction, violence, oppression, pride, anger, jealousy, these are all things that flow from this one cosmic, titanic event when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. So all the, the suffering and the hardship that are experienced in the human existence are because of the fall. They are God's right judgment on sin. So if the ultimate source of all evil and physical and spiritual is, is the fall, the sin, is the suffering we experience deserved. I'm not talking about suffering that's a direct result of sin, but just suffering in general, when we experience loss and hardship. Is that our fault? Well, no. And yes. Here's what I mean. I'm going to try to use an analogy here. Uh, my, we just bought a house. That's really exciting, Yay. But if you're house shopping right now, you know it takes a couple houses because they're just going like this and they're going for crazy prices. It's a nut, it's a crazy market. We were looking at a house in August, loved it. It was really close to the church, beautiful outside of the building, and man, it had some issues. It was at the bottom of, of, of a large neighborhood that had a slope all the way through the neighborhood. And, um, and so basically the water, when it would rain, would run down the entire neighborhood. From the, all, all the water from the neighborhood would run down and like funnel into the foundation of the house. And so you'd had 100 years of water just hammering the foundation, and it had begun to compromise. And literally the house, like there was a side uh, room that was literally separating from the house. I mean, it moved about three inches. You could see it in the roof. Um, when the house was built, it was framed wrong. And so load-bearing walls were misaligned. And so you had literally walls on the first floor sinking like six inches into the ground because it had been framed wrong. And just, just a million other problems with the house. And the problem was that you'd had 100 years of owners who had patched problems and never actually fixed them. They just kind of like tried to patch the leaks but not address the, the cause behind it. And so 100 years of people just kind of patching the problem, not fixing it, you got this place where all of a sudden this house is probably going to sell for 40% less than what it would otherwise sell. And the owner who was selling it, she'd been living there for 20 years. Here's the question. Is it, fair that she, that, is it fair that she has to foot the bill for 100 years of misuse of that house? Does she deserve to foot the bill? No. She didn't frame the house. She, for 80 years before that, she wasn't the one who wasn't it. And here's the other thing, too. I mean, like, when it was, mis, when it was, mis, when it was framed wrong, as, as, as the walls are sinking, literally every wall had cracks and every ceiling had cracks. You'd have to repave or with skim coat the entire building. Is that her fault? No. But yes, because for 20 years, she had contributed to the problem. She hadn't tried to reroute the water, so it kept hammering the foundation and led to irreparable damage. She hadn't tried to adjust the structural issues, so there continued to form cracks throughout the house. So is it her fault? Well, no, it's not. It's, it's all their fault, but she contributed to that. So when we look at the fall and we look at suffering, why Jesus had to bear our suffering, suffering that we experience, is it our fault? Well, no. 
But yes, because we are sinners and we contribute to the problem that led to the vandalizing of God's shalom. And we experience the consequences of that in all kinds of ways. And this is really important to keep in mind when we go through suffering because when we go through suffering, it can be very tempting to say, God, you are not being fair. I don't deserve this. And this is where we come back and this is a hard truth to swallow, but there is nothing unfair about the suffering we experience as we are sinners who participate in the sin that has vandalized shalom and has led to the situation being what it is. At the end of the day, it is a mercy that we are not always sick. It is a mercy that we are not always suffering. We as a human race have vandalized God's shalom, and we experience the consequences of that in griefs and sorrows. So what does it mean in verse 4 when it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. What does that mean? That's the good news we need. We spent a lot of time describing life. Okay, but he has borne our griefs. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he takes us out of suffering, that's for sure. Anyone who's been a Christian longer than a day knows that's not true. But what it means is that he has borne the effects of the fall for us so that in the midst of our griefs and our sorrows, he can give us his peace. Jesus said it like this in John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. What that means in the midst of the sorrows and the struggles we will all experience because we live in a fallen world, because Jesus literally bore those sufferings in the life he lived as a suffering servant and the death he died as a suffering death, he bore the consequences of the fall for us. So though we walk in suffering and grief, we can at the same time receive his peace so that we can be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are treated as impostors and yet true, as known and unknown and well-known as dying, and behold, we live as punishing and killed, and as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. In the midst of our suffering, God gives us his own peace. Because Jesus has borne our griefs for us. Do we really believe that Jesus can bear our griefs and our sorrows? I don't know what grief or sorrow you bring with you this morning, if you're online. Do we really believe he can bear your grief and your sorrow, your particular sorrow, whatever life has happened? And if you believe that, how, how then will you act this week? Where will you seek your peace? If you really believe that Jesus can give us shalom so that we can be always sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I think a lot of times we, we don't seek the presence of Jesus because we don't really think there's peace in his presence. We don't really think he can restore shalom, flourishing, delight. Here's our, here's our encouragement. God made this promise to exiled Israel. 
a community that had experienced suffering that I don't think any of us can empathize with. And I know there's some pretty intense suffering in this room. The level of suffering that the community of Israel had experienced. And God said, my servant will bear your griefs, your sorrows. There's no sorrow or grief too big that the Lord cannot bear and cannot offer and exchange his own peace. That is a wonderful truth. If we will seek his presence as knowing that he is the one who gives us peace. The first cost of our restored shalom of our peace is that he bore our griefs. The second cost is that he bears our very death. I've mentioned the fall, the effects of the fall of sin and disease and and violence and, and natural disaster, but the ultimate effect of the fall, the greatest tragedy of sin is death, which symbolizes our separation from God. So Adam and Eve, as they sinned, the worst part of that was they had to leave the garden. And, because, and that symbolized God's presence. And because they had to leave God's presence, they no longer had access to the tree of life, which gave life eternal. And what's easy to miss is that the first, the first story recounted after Adam and Eve leave the garden is that Cain kills Abel. Someone dies. It's the first human death. And then chapter 5 of Genesis, we get those long genealogies, which if, you know, growing up when I was a kid, all I noticed was, these guys lived like 900 years. How is that possible? I don't know how that's possible. And that, but that's what we focus on. That's not the point of the genealogies. The point is that every single person that says, so-and-so lived so many years, had so many kids, and then he died. 50 times in a row, lived, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. That's the effect of the fall, is death, ultimate separation from God. It's where everything is leading in life. You know, it's interesting, the atheist bus campaign, it's, it's, it's interesting that the messaging was God probably doesn't live, so probably doesn't exist, so go ahead and live your life. Focus on life. But a peace that can't make sense of death is a trivial peace. There's no guarantee that any of us will live our life to the fullest. There is a guarantee we will all die. And so a peace that can't make sense of death, that can't address the deep concerns of death, that's just a superficial peace. It's a false peace. It may make us feel better in the meantime, but it's trivial. As verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Oh, we like sheep, we have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, is born, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus died the death that all of us deserved because we walk in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. Now, I mentioned that Jesus bore our griefs. So that doesn't mean that we no longer grieve, but it means that we grieve differently and we have joy in the midst of our grief and we have peace in the midst of the struggles of life. So what does it mean when I say Jesus bore our death, that we won't die? No. Unless Jesus comes back, we will all die. We will all stop breathing one day. But it means that though we die, yet we shall live because Christ will not abandon us. Because he took our death for us, well, that means that the ultimate meaning of death, which is separation from God forever, that no longer applies, which is why death no longer 
has mastery over us, why we no longer fear death. We know who conquered the grave. And because he bore our death for us, yes, we will die, but death has lost its sting. And when Jesus raises us to life, we will have fully restored shalom, peace. The peace we receive from him now in part, we will receive in full. Because Christ bore our death for us. This peace that Christ gives us at the cost of himself, this is a costly peace. The center of our faith is a conviction that Jesus took enemies and made them friends with God. That Jesus stepped into the enemy's camp and brought pardon and forgiveness. But at the cost of his own life, God at the cost of his son, God at the cost of himself, Our peace was very costly. And so unlike the atheist bus campaign, the message for Christians is, so just go live your life. That's not what we say. No, no, no. The cost of our peace makes us tremble. I'm not worthy of this love. God would love me in such a way, at such cost to himself. I'm not deserving of the peace that gives, you know, joy in the midst of sorrow, that gives hope after death, that gives meaning. I'm, I'm not deserving. I tremble in the presence of a God who would love us at such a cost to himself, who would bring us such peace at such cost. Which would certainly cause us to tremble that we would ever sin again that we would ever add even a minute of agony to the Lord's death. We also rejoice, for we have peace, not as a marketing platitude or as a generic well-being, but as a conviction grounded in the death and resurrection of our Lord who has brought us peace himself, who promises us, come to me. It doesn't matter what's happening in life, what pandemics are going on or grief you're experiencing. I will give you peace. I will give you shalom, restoration for you and your family, and ultimate restoration and shalom we will all receive one day. Christ has bought us peace at the greatest cost imaginable, at the cost of himself. And here's the thing, he doesn't want us to try to pay him back, like, you've given me peace when I deserved judgment, so I'm I'm gonna try to pay you back, God. I'm gonna do my best. That's not what he wants. We couldn't ever pay him back. That's a pipe dream. What he wants is our hearts. He brought us peace at the greatest cost imaginable and all he wants in return is our hearts our loves our worship and worship is something that we give such a king on advent let's pray jesus you are our peace You restore us to the design that you had intended from the beginning and in the groanings of this world that is marred by sin, you still give us joy and hope. And as we look forward to celebrating the day when you became a baby so that you could bring us true peace at the cost of yourself, we are, we are overwhelmed. 
We offer you our hearts. We offer you everything. There's no gift too great that we couldn't give to you. Pray this in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we continue seeing this morning.